Welcome to Now Let's Talk, the podcast with Vanessa Corwin and Kathleen Kahn. As the world opens up, we'll be talking to people about their experiences during COVID, as well as the joys and challenges of life beyond the pandemic. Hello, I'm Vanessa Corwin. And I'm Kathleen Kahn. The world is watching Putin's war in Ukraine. How much longer can Ukraine hold out? even with substantial aid from NATO allies. With us today is Alexander Modell, Professor of Political Science at Rutgers University in Newark, New Jersey. He's a specialist on Ukraine and Russia and the former USSR. He's authored many books and he contributes to journals, op-ed pages and magazines. And by night, he's a poet and painter a true Renaissance man. Welcome to the podcast, Alex. Thank you so much, Vanessa. Thank you so much, Kathleen. So let's start with uh, putting this conflict in in, uh, some kind of context. The cultural and political relationships between Russia and Ukraine are complicated. Many Ukrainians, particularly in the East, are Russian-speaking and have family and close ties in Russia. So could you please explain these uh, complexities for us? That's a, that's a, you know, it's a far more complicated question than it seems at first glance. Uh, because uh, if you look at the historical trajectories of Russia on the one hand and Ukraine on the other, you see that they go off in different directions and they continue in different directions throughout most of history. But then at various times, they also intersect. But for the last roughly, let's say, 200 or so years, uh, Ukraine and Ukrainians have been part of the Russian Empire. That was the case starting roughly in the 18th century, middle of the 18th century, through the collapse of Imperial Russia in 1917, and then in the Soviet Union, which was essentially a Russian Empire, and then um, 1991, the whole place falls apart. Uh, So because of Ukraine's status as a Well, frankly, as a colony, that would be the best way to look at it, as a colony within the Russian Empire. uh, There was a lot of intermixing on the level of culture, on the level of politics, economics, obviously personal intermixing as well. But the important point to keep in mind is that it wasn't horizontal. It was dominant and subordinate, where the Ukrainians were the subordinates and the Russians were the dominants. Uh, So the result of that is that you have a perception on the part of many Ukrainians starting in the 19th century, that the only way that the Ukrainian culture and language and nation can survive and thrive is if it breaks out of this dominant subordinate relationship, which is another way of saying if it becomes independent, right? Um, so the Ukrainians along with you know, scores of other national movements in the 19th century started demanding autonomy and dependence from the Russian empire. That came to a head during World War I and the revolution. Ukraine was independent for about two, three, four years, depending on how you count it. Then everything fell apart. The Russians took it over. Um, and basically have remained in charge of Ukraine until 1991 when the Soviet Union fell apart. Um, And then the last 30 years were a period where Russia and Ukraine seemed to be developing as independent states that would be able to find some kind of modus vivendi. Um, But of course, as you know, Putin changed all that. 
his decision to invade has completely severed this relationship. Uh, Ukrainians almost to a person have become deeply, profoundly, irrevocably anti-Russian. I, I believe the rest of the world uh, never thought of Ukrainians as heroes, uh, but they certainly do now. And obviously the Russians underestimated them. How is this situation different from when the Russians annexed Crimea in 2014. It seems as if they just walked in with little resistance. Uh, one, of course, one difference is, of course, the question of size. Then uh, Russia invaded Crimea plus parts of the Donbass in the east. This time, uh, the invasion took place along the entire southern, eastern, and northern borders. Then, as you said, quite rightly, Russia pretty much walked in. This time it met very fierce resistance and now after over a hundred days of fighting is actually on the verge of losing the war. And that points to a very significant difference within Ukraine. In 2014, Ukraine had just experienced three months of a fairly chaotic, very energizing, but nonetheless a fairly chaotic revolution, which led to the uh, deposition of the then president, Viktor Yanukovych. Uh, so Ukraine, while, you know, while on the one hand, everybody was exhilarated and feeling terribly patriotic and victorious, at the same time, the country's institutions were pretty much chaotic. Uh, it wasn't clear who was responsible for what. The opposition out of one, but it wasn't quite yet in charge. Um, at the same time, the Ukrainian army, thanks to Mr. Yanukovych, consisted of about six to 7,000 battle-hardened, battle-ready troops. Today, the situation is completely different. Uh, for one thing, you have an effective government. And in contrast to, the, to Mr. Yanukovych, who wasn't much of a president, Ukraine now has a very charismatic, very effective president by the name of Vladimir Zelensky, who's been able to respond to this Russian aggression by taking matters in his hands, publicizing the Ukrainian cause in the international arena and mobilizing the people around himself. Why do you think there was so little resistance in Crimea? The reason for there being so little resistance was that most of Crimea had already been in Russian hands. Crimea, since 1994, had the status, status of an autonomous republic, so it was pretty much self-ruling. Uh, the Ukrainian military's presence in Crimea was minimal. The uh, Sevastopol figured as the base for the Russian Black Sea Fleet. So the Russians already had something like 20 to 30,000 troops in Crimea. They didn't have to invade. They were there. But it wasn't an invasion per se. It was just a takeover. And at the same time, Kiev is, is chaotic. People aren't quite sure what's going on in the country. And Putin was literally able to walk in, as you said, literally walk in, take over. And then everybody suddenly awakens and realizes, oh, my God, this is what's happened. And now I see the Russian ships are docked in Crimea, loading wheat. Is it Russia's intent to starve the Ukrainians as uh, in the Stalin time? As to the question of starvation, uh, I, I, I would call it, it's a, it, what, what it is, what's going on in, in Ukraine since February 24th 
is actually a conscious policy of genocide on the part of the Russian regime. So there have been reports of thousands of atrocities, war crimes, rapes, pillaging, looting, and of course the uh, virtually unlimited bombardment of cities which are being destroyed. They're being leveled to the ground with no concern whatsoever for the civilian population. Putin, what Putin essentially wants is to destroy Ukraine as a state and as a nation. He wants the territory. Uh, in my own thinking, I've made the comparison of Hitler and Putin. Exactly. Uh, both were essentially maniacal, uh, aggressive, imperialist leaders. Both were fascist, both tried to build up empires, and both had their scapegoats. Back before the hostilities actually started, um, initially, the U.S. warned Ukraine about these impending attacks, and uh, at least uh, publicly, they didn't act as if this could really happen. So why was that? Was that a strategy on the part of Zelensky? I think Zelensky, along with most of his people, were simply of the opinion that a full-scale war uh, was just impossible. To be honest, I was of that opinion as well. Um, I expected some kind of incursion in the Donbass, in the East, uh, and, you, you know, minor localized, possibly bloody, but localized and minor. Um, and the opinion amongst most Ukrainians was similar to mine. And basically the argument that all of us were making, and I think Zelensky subscribed to this, was that, as I used to say, you'd have to be crazy to start a war uh, because it would unleash sanctions. It would mean the end of the North Stream 2 pipeline. Yeah. It would lead to heavy resistance by Ukrainians. It would possibly provoke a, produce a quagmire. It would, you know, thousands of body bags would be flying back to Russia. Uh, Putin could lose power, the regime could change, the world would isolate Russia. And people basically argued, including me, that given all of those negatives, you'd have to be crazy to invade. But Putin did. <laughs> and of course, everything that people foresaw is happening. And I personally believe that Zelensky was of that opinion as well. We're still hearing uh, on the news, or we, what some of the news has said, that the Russian soldiers don't even know why they're fighting. That's why they're weak. They're beginning to protest in Russia. Am I correct? Initially, initially that was the case. Uh, the for, you know the first few POWs that the Ukrainians captured said, you know we were we weren't told why we're here. We were just based. We were told that these were exercises, and. That may be true, right? It may be true, or it may also be a line that they're spinning uh, so as to kind of get off the hook of having invaded a country. Uh, it's hard to say. I, my guess is that it was true for some, not true for others. Um, but what is true, what seem, and there's, again, a whole bunch of evidence to this effect, is that there is that the that there is a significant degree of demoralization within the Russian armed forces? Some of them have also been shocked by the higher living standards in Ukraine. And again, remember, Ukraine is one of the poorest countries in Europe, so that just says something about the the level of living standards in Russia. 
Uh, and many of them are, you know, were started questioning, well, what are we doing here? Why are we here? Whom are we liberating? I mean, as to with what particular end in mind? And then, of course, the fatalities. 30,000 is simply enormous. And the, the enthusiasm for being sent to the front <laughs> and possibly being killed as a form of cannon fodder isn't exactly appealing to many Russian men. And is it, is it also true that the Russian military is quite badly organized? I mean, their command chain is faulty. Uh, they don't have enough non-commissioned officers in the field, and uh, they're uh, kind of clumsy in their strategies. And uh, do you agree with this assessment? And do you think this is part of the reason why the Ukrainian uh, resistance has been so successful? Clearly, that's part of the part of the uh, equation. I mean, the Ukrainians have turned out to be far better than anybody suspected. But at the same time, the Russians, who were supposed to have had the second best army in the world, have turned out to be, I don't know, in a hundredth place or thereabouts. <laughs> Partly, it's poor planning. They thought that they could just go in in two days. And, you know, there were reports of soldiers who had enough food for two days and then started starving and eating cat food, dog food, and things like that. All right, so clearly they were, there was a lack of preparedness. Uh, but at the same time, they didn't plan for logistics. They didn't plan for fuel, for supplies. Uh, they simply attacked, this was in the early stages of the war, they simply sent their um, armored uh, vehicles, especially their tanks, along these roads uh, the fields were impassable, and the Ukrainians were simply picking them off one at a time. And they're now concentrating all their efforts in seizing parts of the Donbass in the east. And their strategy there, uh, they shell some part of a territory, you know, which they need to occupy. And they, you know, without any regard for civilian lives, for infrastructure, for buildings, I mean, they just destroy the losses apparently in the last few weeks on the Russian side have been very high, uh, but the Russian attitude towards their own human soldiers is that technology, the heavy weaponry matters more than the individual soldier. Soldiers are expendable, tanks are not, planes are not, so they send them in one at a time. You also mentioned a very important problem with the Russian armed forces, namely their lack of uh, a kind of middle range officer class. So they've got people at the very bottom and then they've got the generals, which means that there's the lines of communication are fuzzy. And the result of that is, is that generals need to go down to the actual front lines in order to oversee what's being done or what isn't being done. In the Ukrainian army, they've got those NCOs, they've got the lieutenants and the sergeants, which they've modeled on the US and other NATO countries, but the Russians are sticking to their old traditions. Mm. And that accounts for the fact that something like 10 to 12 Russian generals have been killed in action. I mean, this is astounding. I, That's I, obviously no way to run an army. Recently, a, a special, a 20-year veteran diplomat wrote scathing letter. I think his name was Boris Bondarev, and he's resigned. What do you think will happen to him? I mean, he wants to stay in Geneva, but God knows what Putin will do. Well, you know, Putin has 
order the assassinations of over 20 political opponents in the last 20 years, 30 years, well, 20 years, excuse me. Uh, so if I were this diplomat, I would hightail it for some safe house in Virginia if I could, and I'd stay there until the, re, you know, the war is somehow settled or Putin disappears. I'd certainly be fearful for my life. Yes. Uh, you know, there have been some individuals within Russia who protested the war, the high, more highly placed visible celebrities that they've been criticized, threatened, but so far they've been untouched. A number of them have been arrested, but someone like this fellow who actually represents Russia on the international arena qualifies as a traitor. And you know what Stalin used to do to traitors. Well, not just Stalin, the Soviets used to do to traitors. They'd hire assassins and they'd make sure that their lives would be limited. So I, I'd certainly be worried. Uh, but the question you ask is very, very good because there is good evidence, again, this isn't just pie in the sky theorizing by people like me, but there's actually good evidence by Russians and by non-Russians uh, that suggests very, very strongly that there are strong divisions within the Russian elite, that there is increasing dissatisfaction with Putin and his war. So it's basically hawks versus doves. Uh, a number of generals have been fired. Apparently, some officials, uh, a significant portion of the security services were fired as well. Uh, so Putin is cracking down uh, for obvious reasons. I mean, he doesn't want to be blamed for the catastrophe, so he's looking for scapegoats. Uh, but at the same time, that's increasing dissatisfaction within the political as well as the economic elite, the oligarchs and others. Uh, they're all losing money. Uh, so there is a lot of discontent. Now, whether that discontent will then manifest itself in the form of some kind of coup or putsch or anything like that, no one knows. Uh, the U.S. is now considering sending special operations forces to help guard the U.S. embassy in Kiev. Now, these embassy, the embassy is now protected by State Department security people. And normally, as you know, the U.S. Marines guard the embassies, but um, due to the current situation in Ukraine, this might not be the best solution. So in your view, uh, what repercussions uh, do you see going forward if they decide to do this, to send the special forces? Uh, would this be escalating the conflict? Well, uh, I mean, the Russians could easily interpret it that way. Although technically they wouldn't be, because as long as they stay in Kiev, then they're not on the front lines, they're not involved in any of the battles and so on. Uh, so it would be a bit of a hard sell. I mean, the Russians are obviously going to say, ah, the Americans are controlling the Ukrainians, the Ukrainians are puppets of Washington, but that's just old stuff. But what this is, however, is a very strong signal to the Russians. Uh, it's basically a signal that we are committed right? I mean, seriously committed to helping Ukraine. And it's also a signal to the Russians, keep your hands off Kiev. Because if you do try to capture the city, then you're going to be dealing with American special ops guys. Do you believe that we've done enough with sanctions against Russia, the United States plus the NATO allies? Well, ideally, you know, the 
oil imports and the gas imports. I mean, that's really the key to the Russian economy. I mean, if you really, really want to cripple the Russian economy, uh, you would put a halt to oil imports. And the Europeans are on the verge of doing that. Hungary is a standout, right? So, but, mm. but they, they, I, I, I've read that there may be ways in which they can get around the Hungarians or get the Hungarians kind of on board. That would be a big deal. Uh, but the biggest, really biggest deal would be to look for alternative supplies of gas. That would, you know, just hamstring the Russian economy overnight. Um, but that's tough um, because there are, you know, the Europeans for a variety of reasons having to do with their own domestic politics uh, are very dependent on Russian yes. gas. Putin has uh, said that they have biological weapons, chemical weapons, and of course, nuclear weapons, and that, that he uh, would not be afraid to use them. Do you think this is like posturing? You think this is a bluff, or do you think he really might do that? You know, before the war began, I would have said, oh, absolutely, this is posturing, just like the posturing that they were ostensibly engaging in vis-a-vis -vis Ukraine. But as you know, I was wrong. <laughs> and I've had to come to the conclusion that this guy is somewhat unhinged. And that worries me because, of course, someone like that, um, and here again, the comparison with Hitler is quite appropriate, might be tempted to use that kind of weapon, a weapon of mass destruction. Now, the Russians, for what it's worth, say that they would never start an atomic war and that they would never start World War III. And but the problem with whatever the Russians say is that it's very hard to distinguish truth from lies. So when they say, you know, for, for months they insisted they would never, ever, ever, never, ever invade Ukraine, and then they did. So now that they say they would never start a war, well, a World War III or use weapons of mass destruction, how is one to interpret that as a genuine statement? Or is that just a, another instance of lying? So it's hard to say. The president of the United States cannot just hit the button without everybody around him uh, stopping him or agreeing. Does Putin have anybody like that? Or is he a one-man band? Well, that's the good news, or at least potentially the good news. I mean, he has a suitcase like all these guys. Uh, and it has some kind of gizmo, and he presses the button in the gizmo. But what that does is it sends a signal to the general staff, to the generals, that Putin has decided, let's do it. Then five of the generals have to sign off on this in sequence. So if any one of them says yet, then there, it's a no-go. Yeah, it's, it's much, sounds like it's much like our system. Right. So it's not just, you know, a crazy guy with a button. It's a little more complicated. And if it's true, as I think it is, that the general staff is divided, some of them are hawks, some are doves, and all of them seem to be critical of Putin, then that would seem to suggest that they're unlike, that at least one of them is unlikely to press the button. You know, yeah. we've been talking about a lot of things, but I just realized we have not mentioned President Zelensky who is everybody's hero, and I'd love to get your take on it. At the beginning, for me, when I heard an actor, a dancer, a comic, I thought, oh boy, they're in trouble. But 
I was wrong. He's he's I don't think anybody expected him to step up to the plate the way he has. What do you feel about that, Alex? Well, you're absolutely right. I mean, I when he was a candidate for the presidency, I was extremely critical <laughs> for precisely the reasons that you alluded to. You know, it's like, good Lord, a comedian. I mean, you know, he's a nice guy, <laughs> but come on. And then he surprised me for the first year. He was OK. And then he kind of got into a rut and sort of missed the boat on a number of things. He was increasingly criticized. So his second year in office, to put it kindly, it was mediocre at best. And then the war. And of course, there too, he didn't quite, you know, should he have seen the, foreseen the war? Maybe yes, maybe no, but he didn't. And it came as a surprise. And virtually no one thought based on his record, based on who he was, I mean, good word, a comedian. And instead, within a few days, I mean, almost immediately, uh, he took control. He stood down Putin. He asserted himself. He said, I'm not leaving. Uh, he mobilized the people. He, you know, he gave them an example of courage. And, you know, frankly, who would have thunk it? Uh, but then again, clearly he had that within him. Yeah, he really, and he really stepped up. He I stepped mean, up completely. Absolutely. And, you know, he's like the world's hero now. And, and don't forget, he's a great dancer. And he's a dancer, <laughs> right? And he's yeah. a pretty good comedian. Dancing with the stars. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So he's been able to connect on all sorts of levels with the world amazing. public. Right. And, and, and in contrast, Putin looks <laughs> like a really, I mean, he looks like a hooligan. Yeah. You know, at, that's putting it very kindly. Well, he is. He was a hooligan he was a hooligan as a as KGB a guy you know right. absolutely right. absolutely right, so. i i don't have like real netflix but i understand they're running uh the first season of Zelensky's um comedy show right a servant of the people yeah it's remarkable so he, because that that show that program uh, or rather, his career really mirrors the program. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> right, uh, because in the program, I mean, he come, he's elected president. He comes along. He's come. He comes in gangbusters. Starts organizing stuff. Then he gets into doldrums. He's get he gets criticized, uh -huh. and towards the end, he comes out with guns blazing and wins the day. Wow! Right, life. Uh, Art life imitating life, life imitating art, whatever, right. you know. Whatever it is, it seems, yeah. one of those seems to be happening, yeah. So going uh, on to another kind of recent incident, uh, there is a 21-year-old uh, Russian tank commander who pleaded guilty to killing a Ukrainian man, but he said he was following orders, and then he was convicted of premeditated murder, sentenced uh, to life in prison. What's your take on that? I mean, do you believe him when he says he was following orders? Do you think that that it was it really came from on high? First of all, we don't know. On the one hand, I can easily imagine that the officer said, hey, guys, why don't you just do whatever you like and have some fun? Because there have been so many cases of rape, looting and mm -hmm. killing. Uh, that it's hard to imagine that this could be taking place without the knowledge of the officers. And of course, this guy, 
you know, he's using the standard response, right? It was like essentially the Eichmann response. Hey, exactly. <laughs> don't blame me. Blame uh -huh. the guys who were giving the orders. I was right. just a, I was just a small cog in the in this yeah. enormous machine. Yeah. We've uh, seen that picture before and, many times. Uh, yeah. Oh yes, there are actually videos. There are actually videos of Russian soldiers just going bang, 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 shooting a family. Well, even when they put up on buildings, these are a hospital, children, to show them these aren't soldiers. Yeah, they still yeah. don't care. That's right. That's right. That's uh, right. They have they have no concern for people, for for citizens. Zero, zero concern. None yeah. whatsoever. Now, do you think that even in 2014, yeah, we had social media, we had uh, 24-hour news channels, but I think their impact is really um, heightened. And so now in this day and age, you know, we've got the war, we've got war all the time. We've got it, you know, 24 seven on cable news. We've got it all over social media. Do you think this has any impact on how the war is going? Yes, absolutely. Uh, on the one hand, it's, a, it's sort of a morale booster for the Ukrainians. Uh, there's no question about that. I've heard that from friends. You know, they don't feel alone. They don't feel as isolated. It gives the soldiers and especially the civilians a sense that, you know, some, you know, the world cares. So that clearly matters. At the same time, as you know, because some people, so many people in so many countries are so outraged by this blatant aggression, there's been an outpouring of support, financial support. That's also had an impact on celebrities, uh, some of whom have contributed, you know, about a million dollars or more. I mean, most recently, I read that Liev Schreiber gave a significant oh. amount of money. He traces, I mean, he's of Ukrainian background, yes. right? Um, so that adds up, right? And yes. for a country that needs money for the war effort, these, yeah. these little bits and pieces add up. And before you know it, you're talking about significant amounts of aid. And clearly that's, you know, to a large degree, a result of this 24-7 social media, right? I mean, we're just inundated with information about the war and the photographs and, the, you know, the photographs of the atrocities and people are outraged, rightly so. Because it's 24-7, because this is what our world is, we, how could we assume that the Russians don't see this, the Russian people? It has to seep through. Can they be so isolated that none of that seeps through and they don't see what actually is going on? Well, part, remember, part of the problem is that the good number, several hundred thousand Russians, sort of young, professional, tech-savvy Russians have left since February. Oh. Uh, and these would be the people who'd be most attuned to social media and so on. Then you've got another 15,000 who appear to have been arrested for publicly protesting in some fashion or other. And again, these are the people who would be on our side, but they're in jail. Um, then you look at the remaining population, especially those living in South Moscow and Petersburg. They do get some information on the internet, but the Russians are blocking the internet sites. So you really kind of need to know how to navigate these things. And most of them get their information from television. And Russian television yes. is simply, it is, Yes. I, I'm speechless. Uh, I mean, they've got yeah. these talk show hosts 
that sound like Joseph Goebbels. Uh, they are demagogues. They are racists. Uh, I mean, they, they talk, they're anti-Semites. I mean, these are just awful, awful people who've been spewing this kind of propaganda for the last 20 years. Mm. And, you know, at some point it begins to seep in. You begin to believe this stuff. Yeah. So a significant portion of Russians do actually believe that they are the victims yeah. of the Ukrainians. So, Alex, how is this conflict, how is this war affecting you personally? I mean, do you have loved ones in Ukraine? Uh, have you traveled to Ukraine since uh, the hostilities began? Well, no, I haven't traveled. I mean, I'm, I haven't been there for a number of years. Well, for two years because of COVID and then now right. because of this. Um, usually I'd spend a month, maybe two over the summer in, in Ukraine. Huh. Um, and I have a whole bunch of friends and colleagues, uh, mostly in Kiev, but also in a bunch of other cities. And then I have, gosh, 20, 30, 40 relatives, depending on how you count wow. them, but mostly in Western Ukraine. And how are and they the, doing? They're okay. I mean, I'm in touch with one cousin, especially. And we communicate on virtually a daily basis. And he's optimistic. He's hanging in there. Um, he tells me about the rest of the family. They're okay. Uh, one or two of them have left for Poland. Mm -hmm. But mostly they're there. Uh, in terms of my friends and colleagues, most of them are also in Ukraine. And, you know, from what I can see from the things they write to me, they seem in pretty good spirits. I mean, the general mood in the country is that the Ukrainians are going to win. Uh, me personally, I mean, for me, when, when, this broke, when the war broke out on February 24th, I was in shell shock for about three days um, because I thought it could never happen. Uh, and then once it happened, I it was like, oh, my God, you know, I never in my life imagined I would be experiencing a war, you know, up close. Uh, so I was in shell shock for three days until this cousin of mine wrote to me and said, hey, I think we're winning. And I thought, son of a gun, he may be right. <laughs> and at that point, my mood swung over to this kind of cautious optimism. Well, I think we all have hope for Ukraine. Um, and I think that personally, I think it's Putin's uh, on his way out. I think it's the fall of Putin. I think uh, this is not going to last. And uh, it's just the beginning of the end for him. I think you're absolutely right. The only question is when yeah. and how many people have to die in the meantime. Right, uh, right. But yeah. that his, you know, the writing is on the wall for him. That's for sure. Yeah, I think he's he's very slowly but surely he's boxing himself into a corner. I mean, he's really um, orchestrating his own demise right in my view what about the the refugees the the huge numbers of refugees um that we're seeing is the international community uh doing enough i think that you know a lot of a lot of folks have really stepped up in that in that You're area right. no uh, the the refugees have gotten a very warm welcome i mean there's something like 10, 000, 10 million people who've had to leave their homes again, roughly 10, and around six have simply been displaced within Ukraine. So they moved from east and south to west. 
uh, and they're being taken care of. And, you know, there's, I mean, I haven't read of any kind of major complaints on anybody's part. So that means another four or so million have left the country. Of that number, about three and a half, three, three and a half are in Poland. Yes. And Poland has been simply phenomenal. I mean, uh, the Poles deserve a Nobel Prize for what they've done. You know, when you cross the border from Ukraine into Poland by train, there are these uh, stands with water, with sandwiches, with soup, with toys for the kids, with yeah. dog food and things like that. It's really quite remarkable. And then another half a million, maybe to a million, they've been dispersed in a bunch of European countries. The Canadians have taken some in, we're taking some in. Uh, but the treatment has been very good. So what's the best way for people, uh, like, especially here in the US, who want to help out? Are there like particular uh, organizations or charities? Well, there's a, uh, there, are, there are a number. Uh, I, I would recommend looking at three in particular. Uh, one is this group run by very tech savvy younger people. It's called Razum for Ukraine, R-A-Z-O-M. They've got excellent connections and they are totally honest. <laughs> They've got a website you can go there and you know click on. And, and they give money for a variety of causes. You can kind of specify where. Um, and they don't take overhead. Then there's a, a, an organization called the Ukrainian National Women's League of America, which has been engaged in charitable activities uh, for about 100 years. And again, very reliable, very honest. Uh, but the work they do is focused on helping children, mothers, families, things like that. Uh, and then finally, the third, the third one would be this kind of Ukrainian political, well, it's a political social umbrella group. It's called the Ukrainian Congress Committee of America. They represent the community. They have, they've been very active in uh, raising funds for wounded soldiers for refugees and things like that. And then, you know, there are all sorts of smaller groups which are pretty good, but those are the main three. And, you know, if you, sub, you, know, if you provide any, uh, funds to them, you can be certain that they'll go to the actual recipients. Well, thank you for that information. Now, we want to know where our listeners can find you. You are, uh, an author of many diversified books. Yes. Can you give us an idea of where we could find the books? There are two simple ways. One is if you Google my name, you'll get a whole bunch of stuff. Yes. Um, but even easier for books, they're all on Amazon. Okay. Um, and I've got something like 10 novels, a poetry collection, and then a bunch of some four or five, well, five or six academic books. They're all on Amazon. They're all, you can, you can even get used copies. <laughs> right. So they can just go to Amazon and, and uh, put in your name. Yes, that's right. It's Alexander Modal. And the last name is spelled M-O-T-Y-L. Uh, or as I say, Mary Oliver Thomas Yellow Lady. You're but put in the whole name, because if you just put in the last name, It'll call up motels and things like that, right? <laughs> so you got to put in the whole name. Alex, thank you so much for your time today and for shedding some light on this very complex topic. Well, it's been my pleasure. Thanks for joining us today. 
We'd love to hear from you, so please send your comments and questions to info at nowletstalkthepodcast.com and check out our website at nowletstalkthepodcast.com. Stay safe and we'll see you next time.